Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Hello and welcome to the show tonight. I'm so glad you chose to join us. I think we're in for a, a delightful episode. The topic tonight, bridging the gap in trauma, addiction, and spiritual awakening. And our guest tonight is Scott Killoughby. We're going to bring Scott on in just a minute. The uh, Every time lately that I have the show every week, it seems like the news has yet another level of crisis, another level of stress, another level of uh, conundrum, if you will. And... Uh, in order for us to traverse this time of immense change, change on the individual level, change on the personal level is is the mechanism of change in the masses. There's, there's not a big knob at the equator or something. There's not a big knob that dictates the, the fate, if you will, of humanity. There's not even a single paradigm that is the official paradigm. There's thousands or millions of uh, paradigms or narratives that are all playing out simultaneously. But when you take the time, when you take the time to um, heal yourself, to grow yourself, to evolve yourself, to to um, discover and um, understand and embody uh, a deeper sense of self, a deeper sense of purpose. You're a vehicle of change f- for the collective. Not only do you make it easier for uh, other people to do it with with the notion of the hundredth monkey, so to speak, but when you when you embody uh, a deeper truth of yourself. Um, everybody can witness that, and you've showed up for yourself. Here's an episode tonight that's all about um, bridging the gap in in your own psyche. So I want to thank you, the listener, for showing up tonight. I think we should get right to it because I'm, I'm sure we're going to have plenty of material. Again, the topic is... Bridging the Gap in Trauma, Addiction, and Spiritual Awakening, and our, gu- and our guest tonight is Scott Killoughby. Scott is a noted author and international speaker on the subject of freedom through non-dual recognition, which is authentic spiritual awakening as it is taught in the East. He is the author of seven books and has traveled the world extensively giving lectures, workshops, and intensives on spiritual awakening and the healing of addiction, anxiety, depression, and trauma. He is a California registered addiction specialist. He is a co-developer of a new model of addiction recovery that is based on inquiry and unconditional love. You got to love that. Scott is a co-founder of the Killoughby Center for Recovery in Palm Springs, California, the first addiction, anxiety, depression, and trauma-intensive outpatient program to focus primarily on mindfulness. He is also the co-owner of the Natural Rest House, a detox and residential center in La Quinta, California. Both facilities focus on Scott's new model of recovery. Scott is the inventor of Mindful Pain Man- Management, an app that acts as an interface between physicians and chronic pain patients to help reduce the risk of addiction to painkillers and more mindfully treat chronic pain. you got to love that. You can check out more about Scott at his website, which is killaby.com, K-I-L-O-B-Y.com, 
join me in welcoming Scott to the show. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Les. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. The, the notion of addiction, anxiety, depression, and trauma uh, seems to hit on the mark what many, many people are going through, um, perhaps in a more pronounced way with this pandemic that started up at the first of the year. Um, are you noticing a, a rise in people showing up for help with with these types of things, or or do they get overwhelmed and actually fall off the radar? I'm definitely seeing a, seeing a rise in people uh, come to me and to my facilitators, the certified facilitators that do the work that I do, um, and for different reasons. I mean, just interesting reasons related to the COVID. Um, situation like of course money issues um issues related to health um future um people losing their houses things like that you know just um the social unrest the civil unrest the people you know i work with people who are protesters work with people who are on the other side of the fence you know so yeah there's (laughs) it's been a lot uh going on in the world, and I've certainly seen it in the work that I've been doing with people recently. Um, We've had guests on the show that suggest that we've all have a level of trauma or PTSD. Um, We all have um, unaddressed um, um, issues in our psyche. At, At what point, I mean... A lot of times when people go through uh, a healing process, perhaps they're getting over addiction or they they went through a tough divorce or whatnot, and they get on their feet, so to speak, and and they're able to stand. A lot of times they'll kind of stop there and just and be so glad to be out of the storm, if you will. Um, when you look at the effect of trauma and anxiety and depression, what's a good uh, evaluation for ourselves um, to be able to recognize something that might not be obvious at first glance? Well, just to ask yourself, I think, what happened to you? You know, not that we should be dwelling on the past because we don't really, you know, ours. Our methodology is a presence-based methodology, which means like we're, you know, it's all about present, a moment, awareness, and that's a, that's a key foundation uh, to it. But to also understand what happened to us, because if you think about PTSD is a, is a clinical diagnosis, and then, you know, so whether one reaches that level of <clears throat> where one should be diagnosed with that is a clinical matter, but if you think of what trauma is, it's a full spectrum of things that have happened to us that have imprinted us emotionally in one way or the other. And so you could say then that everyone is traumatized because we all have certain triggers and, you know, that, that that we react to or certain things that really upset us or whatever. And we can often trace that back in our work to earlier experiences with parents, very much mom and dad um, and, or, and other important people and events and childhood or earlier in life, you can start to see patterns in people's lives for sure that they're getting triggered by similar things kind of in a, in a pattern over and over because, you know, the trauma does that. It often repeats itself in that way. So, yeah. When you talk about being in the present moment and, um, as as a tool is is that awareness in the moment um, um, just in and of itself, or do you do you place that on your body or how you feel or what might pop up in your mind? Well, we just we, there's several ways we show people, you know, the sort of the portals to it. So just like 
you know, noticing for a moment that you're thinking, hearing that voice in your head. And if you stop it, just listen to it for a second. Just stop, get very quiet and listen to it. And then as you hear it, if you just kind of let it just come to come too quiet for a moment, just let it fall away into nothingness. It's just that point in time where there's no thought. And you just rest there in that place where there's no thought. So there's no thought there. You're not referring to you or self or anything. It's not a thought, but yet you're still here, whatever you are, aware, still awake, you know, to the moment. We teach people little portals like that just to show them, um, give them that access to what's already here, of course, because we're already, we're already present here. But to actually recognize it, you know, give them a little taste and little ways of doing that, and then that becomes the basis of then exploring some of the past stuff, ironically, through presence, because it is our present awareness that, for example, would be observing... Um, you know, thoughts about the past, you know, a trauma that comes up, we would have people observe those thoughts, those memories about that trauma. But that observation happens from present awareness. They're right here in the present moment. They're observing these thoughts right, you know, right in front of them. Um, And they start to see that more and more, which makes them feel safer because that way they don't feel like they're back in the past and reliving it, which can be re-traumatizing. And... Yeah, so we work with it that way. But anyway, I probably answered more than you asked. No, no problem. Um, when you look at, um, for example, uh, emotional struggles, like uh, I love the example of road rage because the before and after are so pronounced, they're such a distinguished difference in um emotional energy if you will when you when you talk about you going through the process of healing addiction anxiety trauma etc is um is there a like an upheaval or a cleanse or a i mean going through and processing the um the energy or the impact of of these types of traumatic imprinting on ourselves. Can you repeat that one more time, just the last part of that? Sorry, there was somebody rushed, uh, playing with some water over here. Well, the, I mean, as you go through the process of working through um, these types of um, personal issues, anxiety, depression, trauma, if we look at that as an element of our psyche, and people come to you because they have these elements, addiction, anxiety, depression, yeah. et cetera, and, and you work through them to the to the point of healing them, it, um, are you are you progressing through um, an element within their being? Like um, with road rage, there'd be an immense amount of emotional energy that overwhelms the um, the client. With depression, there's a, an onset of of heaviness uh, within their own psyche. I mean. How would you describe the transformation of your clients as they go through yeah. the process? Well, they carry in the energy of the trauma already. It's already in them. And so even often, like, you know, they come in here with that, with that heavier energy, with that sadness, with that, however it's affecting them, right? Maybe they're very anxious all the time. So we take the process of just very quietly and meditatively having them observe in their own awareness um, images chronologically um, of the trauma. But we do so in a way, the way we guide it is we have a complete process of doing it, guiding them into that so that it's not too scary. And then when it comes up, we have questions and different tools that we use to help them just not be overwhelmed by what they're seeing, but then also being able to observe it in a way that allows it to fall away 
just one by one um, the important memories of a particular trauma and then having them going into their body each time an important memory falls away. <clears throat> they go into their body and it's easier than to go into their body because that thought fell away. They have their they have their attention freed up to go into their body and we have ways of exploring their body including to help stuck energy move and emotions that are repressed come up and then as they do come up sadness, guilt, whatever, shame. We have ways of sort of teaching them to gently be with that, <clears throat> allow it to come just completely come through because we're just pulling things up and allowing them to be instead of holding them down and not not failing them or anything, which is what really leads to um, depression, depression, anxiety. <clears throat> so we're learning to teach people how to actually be to relate differently to their experience, all of their experience, thoughts and feelings, sensations, everything. Did you have a personal experience or epiphany in your life that um, brought you into this material, into this work? I did. Yeah, it's a yeah. I, I sure did. Yes. Can you share that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's of course the longer version, and there's the long version. <laughs> um, we have time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, so for me, many years I was a seeker, but I was a drug seeker. That was my life. Um, I was a musician, a songwriter, and mostly was just you know I was chasing fame, chasing as a songwriter in in bands and um, chasing drugs too. <laughs> And that overtook me to a place of, of desperation at some point. And then I went and I got into recovery and sort of renounced all the opiates and the alcohol that I had been addicted to. And for many years remained clean and sober and everything. But somewhere in being in the program that I was in, the recovery program, it just didn't work for me. And I became a spiritual seeker. And so I started to search everything I could get my hands off on from every region of the world the different um, religions, the different mystic branches, the different uh, everything, everything from Buddha had to say, from what Buddha had to say to Hinduism to um, American Gnostic Christianity and so many other things. <clears throat> um, and I was in a mad search, I think, uh, for enlightenment. And I picked up a few books that spoke very directly to that subject. And what it did is that started to practice, a practice, a sort of like a, well, I don't want to say a practice, but a new way of relating to my thoughts and feelings. I was extracting from those books the way that one actually relates to one's thoughts and feelings, who one who's awake or one who has become enlightened, and what that person is actually seeing. So I was sort of just mimicking that and looking at that in my own experience every day. For about a year and a half, it was my own journey. My only, I didn't announce it to anyone. <laughs> I was living in Indiana, a Midwestern town, um, where, you know, 7,000 people. Uh, I didn't have a teacher there with me. I was just exploring this on my own. And after doing that for a year and a half, um, some a set of experiences started to happen to me were very powerful. I was doing these practices every day, really, in a sense, all day. Of um, Instead of just thinking all the time, noticing my thoughts, and then just watching them kind of fall away a lot, and just being very quiet as thoughts fell away, just being very quiet in the mind, just being very present in that moment. And I did a lot of that, and being in my body, just resting my attention in my heart area um, for what you could say long periods of time, you know, just, you know, long moments of time, just being in my body, which is not something I'd ever done before because through all my struggles with addiction, I could never be in my body. I didn't want to feel. I wanted to medicate that. Um, so I started those practices, and for a year and a half I did that. And... Yeah, so the, let's see, the most, there, there were a few experiences that happened to me. One was um, 
from the from the practice of resting my attention in my heart area, which I did very, let's say religiously, <laughs> I did for a couple of months, I would say, there became this really strong ball of energy in my chest, a t- sort of a tightly wound ball, um, both very uncomfortable and at some level sort of slightly blissful, but mostly uncomfortable. And that was just in my chest uh, from doing this kind of looking practice. Um, and I had in that for a few days that was in my chest and I was just driving and um, I came home and I was watching some TV show and as I was doing that, the uh, the ball of my chest just dissolved and I walked into my room and for the first time I really knew what the word stillness was pointing to because my mind went completely quiet, um, just automatically quiet, just nothing. And there was a deep, deep stillness that I felt that I had never, ever felt before, way deeper than anything that I'd ever touched. And that was certainly a very powerful experience that happened there because that that really showed me, for some reason, there was something about that moment that showed me, um, for some reason, that all of the schools and, um, or I should say religions and traditions and worldviews and, po- and political views and political parties and everything really is nothing. It's just a bunch of thinking. <laughs> and it just really showed me sort of so much about the world and how it just we make things up through thinking. You know, that was a major insight right then. But still I felt I wasn't done yet. I was still a seeker, you know, and very much a seeker. And so I continued to seek, and and at that point the the practices became more fine tuned, uh, geared towards um, really being here in the now, awake in the now. And one night I was in my bedroom and with my two dogs in my bed, and I I had been camping that night earlier. Anyway, I came home and I was in my bed with my dogs, and I had one hand on each dog. And suddenly, um, I could not tell the difference between myself and my dogs <laughs> as I felt them. It felt like one mm-hmm. thing. It didn't feel like that I was touching dogs. It was just like one thing was happening. And then I it was very startling at first. And I heard the thought, consciousness just wants to see itself, which is not language that I would have used. That's not language that any of the teachers that I was following would have used. But for some reason, that thought came in almost like it wasn't my voice really it was almost like I don't know whose voice it was but it was just a voice that said consciousness just just wants to see itself and so therefore for some reason like that was a command or something then I got out of bed and I walked around and everything was me but there was no me so it's very hard to explain other than the entire the entire idea or notion of separation was gone. <laughs> um, and so that's the, that's why I tell people it's like the street light was me, the wall was me, the carpet was me, the bathroom was me, you know, the sidewalk outside was me, the sky was me. Meaning there was no me, that there was no separation anywhere. And, you know, very, very powerful experience um, just with immense laughter just laughing at the idea of death or time seeing both of them as not being real in different ways they're not real um, and laughing at death for sure and just kept, just but kept coming to is well we, we don't die we we don't die <laughs> right um, oh yeah um, and then just a lot of love too. So for for days there, just an immense amount of love for no reason. It wasn't love for anything or love for anyone. It was just a very very intense amount of love and Kundalini energy moving up out. And 
so then after that, so so that just shifted everything, and I changed careers from that and everything. And I mean, I was an attorney, and that just didn't fit with what was happening to me. And so I left the practice of law, and I just started talking about this stuff. Not really, a, you know, I didn't leave. I, I just actually just started talking about this before I left the practice of law. I didn't intend to like become a spiritual teacher. Um, I just started while I was practicing law. I started to write about this, what was happening for me, and and as I did, more people came and and invited me to do talks here and there, and, and it grew and grew. And I wrote about six books on it, and <clears throat> then I began to work with people one on one, and that's what I've been doing for years is mainly one on one work. But in the meantime, we've opened treatment centers. Um, to help those people who need a higher level of care. But anyway, so I've developed since that that shift in whatever happened to me in 2007, what has been happening for me is just sort of the creative process sort of taking over in different ways and developing with the help of others, um, you know, different ways of um, inquiry that free people from suffering <laughs> say it, to say it one way because when I looked you know back in the day when I was you know heavy in my spiritual seeking days you know I still wanted to know how and I know that the answer is there is no how there is no path there is no way but still we we are intelligent enough that we can actually at least do something to place ourselves closer to the lion's mouth <laughs> you know um, so sure. to speak um, and so I wanted to know what that is. And so that's what I've been doing is developing just ways of helping people. And some people that do our work are not even interested in enlightenment or awakening. You don't have to be, you know, that doesn't have, doesn't have to be your goal. A lot of people come just to do the trauma part of our work. So we work, we've special, you know, just sort of develop this just work, to work with what we call historical triggers. But that's just trauma, you know, historical tr- triggers, same thing. <laughs> um yeah, and and we work with uh, addiction, of course, at the treatment centers and online, um, and just just people who are unhappy. You know, the main one of the main things we focus on is just this sort of this aspect of the ego that uh, feels deficient or lacking. We call it the deficiency story. The I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. I'm unsafe. I'm not enough. I'm weak. I'm powerless. I'm a victim. I'm, um, uh, you know, not good enough. Uh, imperfect, invalid, unlovable, unacknowledged, unheard, unsupported, <laughs> different. You know, all these stories that people have that really lie. We we show them through a process that we have that that actual story runs a big part of their lives and is a big part of their suffering. And so we've develop some inquiries that really target that because we see it as really at the root of a lot of suffering that people experience. It can kind of be traced back to that in a way. Um, Of course, well, that is the ego itself, right? (laughs) Ego in black or whatever. Um, But anyway, so yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's the the shorter, long version of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you talked about going from uh, opioids and alcohol addiction to a deep sense of stillness and a understanding of of the oneness of all that is. I mean, I'm no psychologist, but that's quite a journey you discovered there. Yeah, it has been quite a journey. It's I could have not have dreamed or planned or made that happen consciously or I don't know how it just simply happened <laughs> um, but I sort of went along for the ride I think I was just sort of lived through it you know just brought right through it so it's been quite amazing well I think the, I would suggest your soul had some say in that um, with with my journey um I like how you said you were you're by yourself in a small town and you didn't share with anybody that you were going through this this practice or, or I don't want to put words in your mouth but it was just a personal thing and 
and it was all within yourself, and you didn't share that. And I very much relate to that. When I went through my awakening, my soul had me just start some of these practices out of the blue, and it, and at the time I didn't understand. My mind didn't understand at all how how <laughs> how much my life would change because of these practices. So when I when I listened to your um, the story that you share, and and I I liked what you said about um, people who are in the addiction, they're in the depression, their their mind is the engine, if you will, that runs all those thoughts, and I I think it's valuable to share with people. Um, how to understand how they um, might not know that they perpetuate the very thing they're trying to overcome, if you will, in the sense that it, it might be so ingrained in their behavior, their thoughts, their feelings, their triggers, their reactive patterns. I mean, when you're in it and you're living it, it's hard to... Um, it can be difficult to step out and see how much of the creator you are in all of this through the um, imprinting of your past, if you will, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, people that I've met through the years who have had uh, an awakening um, experience, a very powerful, you know, authentic awakening experience where they've really woken up out of their conditioning or out of ego or out of identifying at least with ego. Those are people who I think had, well, well, there's, there's a few different groups, but there's a big group of them who had the intention to seek awakening to begin with. Um, and, you know, that intention had to come somehow into their life, you know, instead of just, operating at the normal ego-identified state where we just sort of think, 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 constantly thinking um, all day long. There has to be something within someone that uh, a readiness level, an earnest, earnestness or, or something to sort of stop throughout the day and notice what's happening, become aware throughout the day of that voice in the head and what the mind is saying, um, what the body is feeling. And to observe it, to begin to learn how to to observe rather than analyze what you're seeing, and so and when you start to observe it, you begin to see it's it's something arising within you. You know, slowly you start to see that it's not you; it's something arising within you. Your voices, the the thoughts are. But you have to take that. There has to be some sort of I don't know if the word is intention is right. It has to be something. Um, I think I've heard a teacher say it has to be some impulse to be free that arises for spiritual seekers for sure who begin to develop that intention to stop and notice throughout the day. And as the more they notice, they start to see, uh, this is just a voice that's talking to me. Or these are just images in my mind that are, they keep pulling me back into the past, um, to be, you know, back to the pain of the past over and over again, or to the images of the future where I fear, fear, feel fear and anxiety, you know, and as you start to just notice the mind, you know, more and more, you can see, you know, it's something happening within your awareness instead of you being it. It's happening within your awareness. And then somewhere in that is a process of awakening that can happen. That's not the only way that it happens. For some people, it doesn't happen that way at all. It's just spontaneously something shifts in their perception. They're not looking for it. They're not seeking it. They're just walking through a lobby one day and, suddenly um, the mind just completely goes quiet and everything that they thought was true <laughs> seems untrue completely in that moment or something. Um, right. But, yeah. But in any event, it's certainly a shift in perception that, that most people, I don't know, I think most people that I do meet, they're seeking that. A lot of people that I meet actually are just, they're not, it's not even that. They're just suffering. That's all that it is, and they just want relief from suffering. 
most of the people. Um, some people are seeking enlightenment or awakening, but many people are just suffering. They just want a life, some sort of life that's worth living. Um, and they're just suffering. Anyway, yes. Oh, well, oh my God, yeah. I mean, the for myself, this uh, pandemic and social media, um, the effect, if you will, of the pandemic on the collective consciousness of which I can observe through social media, I had no idea how deep, how so deep fear has has overwhelmed some of these people. I mean, they're literally oh, yeah. scared to death. I mean, at a level I couldn't, I, I never would have guessed. And you talk about um, they just want the, the 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 suffering to end, whatever their their own personal grief is to end. But um, in order to to go from being in the quagmire to go from the internal turmoil of of the heaviness of PTSD or depression or trauma or addiction, and then to traverse that and come out of the pain, if you will, come out of the um, um, clench, if you will, of the addiction, that's a, that's a monumental event for so many people because, um, like, vets from war, they can go their whole life and never get um, through the, the the torment of their soul, so to speak. So to be able to provide that that vehicle of of transcending the pain and the suffering, that's that's extremely commendable. Yeah, I think you you really have to help people. I don't know if I want to use the word heal because I don't want to assume that everyone that we work with is broken, but I think you have to help people process um, their pain, certainly people who are traumatized first, before they can really change their relationship to these addictions, these things they're addicted to. And so I think we've had to we put the cart before the horse in the past in a way in the addiction treatment world because we sort of just brought people in who are already hurting and have been hurting and were probably using drugs and alcohol, most of them, the studies say. <laughs> they were using it to medicate trauma or things that had happened to them. The old way is just sort of take everything away. But then you still have these people who are hurting and whose pain has not been healed and <clears throat> who, you know, are so traumatized. And so they have to relapse, and they do relapse, and so we have this high relapse rate. You know, we have that historically in this field because of that, because the underlying trauma is not being dealt with. So what we've done is just put trauma first um, when we're working with people at our centers because we know that, like, that's that's the thing that drives. It's one of the main things that drives the addiction itself. So to just go straight to it and to begin going back to the past and really unhooking people from the emotional pain of the past through, you know, the, the, the different techniques that we've now developed from the work that I've done through the years, you know, helping them with that first, because that's the thing that takes people out often, you know, t- we say take them out, taking out means um, when people leave treatment because to relapse, uh, we don't use that word relapse, we use resuming use, but and they resume the use of heroin or something briefly while they're in treatment or something. But, you know, yes, to be to be honest with you, yes, addiction is one of the more intractable things to treat because the person has to really be highly motivated to decrease the harm in their life in in that way to, you know, truly give up the the very medication they've been using to cover up the pain. <laughs> So they they have to figure out a different way. And so many of them become interested in spirituality as a way to find the answer to the question of their pain. And and other people move to other addictions, of course, right? Um, many people do. 
Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. Well, if you if you think about the impact of of this pandemic, where um, if we go back a year, we don't even have to go back that far because it didn't start. Um, what well, my point is, a lot of times people have uh, coping habits. So maybe they have a book club on Thursday night and they put away a couple of bottles of wine and get hammered and that mass of the pain in their psyche that they don't want to deal with and and then later in the week they have a habit of perhaps more alcohol or whatnot and and what I'm getting at here is with this pandemic um, so I mean millions of people have been pulled out of their uh, coping mechanisms that are outside of the house that are um, were the ritual that made life tolerable, even though they, they're carrying around a lot of pain, the ritual that made it tolerable has been turned on its head. What would you say to our audience if they were to look at their own self and and perhaps have some some pain in their own psyche and their way of dealing with it has been turned on its head? In other words, it it's kind. I mean, instead of going to work and and mingling with other people and texting and whatnot, they're sitting at their house. They're working from home, and that isolation um, is an opportunity for some of these uh, tougher feelings to come front and center in their psyche. What what's are some of the tips or advice that you would give to those kinds of people. You know, we we have a program where people are connected to people, um, of course, remotely because of COVID, where they can do this kind of work with each other and, and start to heal together, you know, and start to do the kind of work that's necessary to have a better life, of course. But when you're, yeah, I mean, we have a new situation on our hands because before, you know, you can be addicted to anything if you want to talk about addiction. You can, you know, people have been sort of have been have that. What what they need is they have they have a need for connection, and so we've had connection up until the COVID crisis came. We've had a certain level of connection, physical connection, at work and in, and with people everywhere and events and everything, and then that gets taken away. And I'll tell you, they they've done studies about that um, with rats and mice in terms of the the less connection that the rats would have and the less room to sort of roam and socialize um, the worse they would do in terms of addiction to <laughs> you know uh, but the more connection that you give these rats you know whether you agree with the, these these uh, tests or not they, these tests are saying you know if you give rats connection more and more connection with other rats they will do less drugs, and the same is true, probably true is that people are at home right now and dealing with things in their own way, those feelings of loneliness or disconnection or whatever that is for anybody, um, they could be medicating it with, you know, anything, Netflix, um, just eating food, um, of course, right. drugs, alcohol, um, sex, it could be anything, um, or just just being miserable, you know, just you know, maybe be on the computer twelve hours a day or ten hours a day, or on the cell phone, um, whatever it is. So, yeah, it's it's a it's quite an issue to deal with. Um, what we say here is though is, is you have to look for the harm, and that's what people do, is when it when something begins to harm your life in some way, whether internally you're in pain over the compulsion, the addiction, or it's harming the people around you, that's when people are motivated. They start to be really motivated to do the kind of work that we do, which is to address that pain um, that's driving them to do that. When their uh, their addiction or their 
their their way of coping is tied to a partner. Um, say they live together in an apartment, whatever, and one of them looks to end the cycle, end the addiction. Um, what kind of an impact can it have on on that kind of a, a relationship dynamic? Because uh, there's an element of codependency, it seems, where they can um, mutually agree to mask or like um, when when one starts to look at at their own individual um, struggles and brings it to the forefront, that can be uncomfortable for the for the partner or the spouse. How how does that dynamic um, work out? It, it it plays out in a, in a thousand different ways. You know, it depends on the personalities involved and how they learn to cope with the um, the person who's experiencing addiction. You know, how the other person has learned how to relate to that person, whether it be going out of their way to do everything they can to make it as comfortable as possible for that person to be addicted or whether it's um, someone who's just simply loved them unconditionally, whether or not they're using, but has also set boundaries or whatever it means. Um, but people handle it in all sorts of different ways, mostly not very skillfully because we were never taught how to deal with it. You know, in our families, we've had it in our families, but we ha- we don't know how to deal with it. And I would say um, there are, there are definitely skillful and unskillful ways to deal with that if it's in your family, for sure. I've learned that through the years. When you see a client work through um, some of their struggles, what are some of the um, unexpected benefits, if you will? Because so often people um, find a tolerable way to live, uh, a tolerable amount of... um, I don't know what to call it, survivability. They've got a life that works now. They're not as, they're not as, um, um, it's not as painful. They, they've kind of come out of the, the, the harder pain, the harder struggle, and they, they come up to a point of, I would call it like breaking even, or now they're able to be somewhat functional. They've got a job. They can, um their life is beginning to work but but on a on a big scale they're just they're just getting up on their knees they're not even um you know a, a passionate human persona has a vision has a dream has a vehicle of expression you, you see what i'm getting at is so often people will kind of break even and then just stop Stop trying to grow. What are the benefits that you've seen of people who keep at it and go deeper and and um, and and stay with it as as far as uh, transforming themselves? If that makes sense. Well, I mean, the people who experience the deepest pain also have the greatest opportunity for freedom because it's almost like the um, the canary in the coal mine that you know if the canary comes out alive, you know we can all go in, but the idea is that um you know the deeper the pain, the more the motivation to find a way to not suffer to end suffering and so you know some people I think because they don't experience some of the deeper pain or they won't they've found ways of coping with it they'll they have a fine life, you know, it's fine. Um, they, they just, they meander through life without having to ever worry or, or go the path of, you know, trying to, to awaken or to, to find clarity. They sort of just go within the, they sort of live within the matrix, um, within all the sets of belief systems and everything and, (laughs) and navigate life and, and some do quite well. 
Um, but many many are suffering, and of course, we're now we have this going on. But we've been having crises forever, and, and the you know there's been suffering going on since you know the dawn of man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always going to be a motivation, I think, for that. Um, not to say that suffering is the only only motivation. Some people just have a, a very gnawing, or they're very drawn to know what is the truth. You know, they have that. They're not necessarily, you know, suffering, 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 but they just have that deep, deep longing to know the truth. And I have met people like that. But um, you know, in term, but so, but the work that we do could actually help anybody. Just any everyday person who has no interest in awakening, they can just use our work to help in a number of areas of life. They don't have to go uh, full on <laughs> to that part of it, you know, waking, right. awakening part. Well, now um, let's talk about your platforms. You, um, in your introduction, I mentioned several um, um, platforms that you have that you're working with. Do you want to uh, uh, go through your platforms and and talk about uh, the services that each one provides? The the different services that we provide? Yeah, I mean, you've got the Killoby Center for Recovery in Palm Springs, and you have the Mindful Pain (laughs) Management. And, uh, I mean, just give us a... An example of your platforms and the services each one of those provide. Right. So if you think about it this way, is that sort of the highest level of care is a, our natural rest house. And natural rest is after my book called Natural Rest for Addiction on Amazon. So the natural rest house is a detox and residential center. So that's a 24-hour care center. This is for people who um, um, people who are just detoxing off of hard drugs or alcohol or anything really um, and need medical detox, medical attention um, and a safe environment, you know, their own bed, bed in, in a, sometimes their own bedroom, um, certainly their own bed in a nice house in a nice neighborhood um, <clears throat> where they can be there. And unlike a lot of other detox places, we, uh, we begin doing our work with them as soon as they feel well enough to do that. Um, a lot of places are just beds that people get well in, but as people get better, we have them start to do our work, and our work we think helps them make, makes them feel better, actually, along with any kind of medication they're getting if they go that route. Um, and so they stay there for however long they need to, and some then transition to our intensive outpatient center, which is called the Killaby Center for Recovery. And that's yeah an outpatient center, so people do not actually stay overnight there. It's just they'll come during the day, and that's a lower level of care. And we do, again, our work there at that center. All of our work is done at both centers, um, our work being the uh, the Killaby inquiries that um, we've developed through the years. We've been referring to that, of these techniques, and that's what they're called, the Killaby inquiries. Um, and then below that, Um, so beyond that I should say we work with people really online all over the world Um, I actually have two mindfulness training programs where we train people in um, different forms of inquiry and the first training program was called the living inquiries and the one that I'm uh, that I'm in now and doing now is called the Killaby inquiries so we certify we train and certify people to do this methodology that works with, uh, you know, using present moment awareness as its basis, as the sort of basis of the entire thing. We teach people how to inquire into their mind in a way that unhooks them from the pain that they're carrying around from the past um, and the worry of the future so that they can just sort of live more here, stabilized in the moment and not sort of, you know, frantically in their head all the time and just, you know, just the is to really to wake up, <laughs> to wake up if they want. But along the way, people don't always come again for that reason. They often come because they just have some trauma to work out or a lot of trauma to work out, and we just work on that. Or we help them with some of their addictions, their cravings, and some of the drivers behind their addictions, like um, shame, um, 
um, self-esteem issues that we call deficiency stories, um, different drivers behind their addictions. We work with them so that they can, you know, and every, you know, the whole topic of addiction, for example, is interesting because it's not all or nothing because most people are using something. Even people who would never go to treatment are using something, whether it's they're using television every day or work or, um, you know, something, sex, love, attention, um, approval. <laughs> approval is one of the major addictions of humans. So everybody's addicted to something. And so in, in a sense... When people get addicted to the substances, the hard substances or whatever, that's where their physical bodies start to become affected. And they have, they're sort of forced into a change, you know. But then the rest of the world is sort of addicted to other things for, you know, the similar reasons to cover up pain, to, to escape some sort of pain. So the work that we're doing um, can apply to really anyone from that perspective, from the addiction perspective. But really the work is much broader than that in the sense that many people come to us just because they're unhappy. (laughs) That's all. They just come because they're unhappy or again, because something happened to them that they've never been able, but they've been years, years and years of therapy and have never been able to get through to it. So they'll come to us and quite often we're able to help them in ways that they've not been helped because it's a different kind of modality. You know, it's based in, observing thoughts and feelings and sensations rather than analyzing them, you know, and uh, doing that through a process of what's called self-inquiry. So it's a pretty interesting, um, you know, evolution that's happened through the years. We've developed these new tools as a way to help people because we were having to work with people um, at the treatment centers who had no background in mindfulness or meditation or anything. They were people who were off the street on heroin, or getting off of heroin, or um, people in extreme states of trauma. They weren't on any drugs. They were just there because they were just deeply traumatized, and they had no background in meditation, mindfulness, anything. So we had to really simplify inquiry, and that's what we've done with these new tools is really simplify them for people. So that's what I think makes them most accessible um, for the people that are enjoying them now. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Um, you know, an hour can go by pretty fast. Um, we've just got a few minutes left. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? No, I just want to thank you for having me. It's been a delight um, talking about the work and talking about just the transformation process that so many people are going through. Um, if people want to know more, just visit us at killaby.com, K-I-L-O-B-Y.com. I just want to thank you again. Us for having me, and uh, be glad to come back anytime. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for being our guest. I, I love the work you're doing. The compassion for you have for humanity is quite palatable, and the passion that you show up to to manifest that compassion is, is very, very honorable. And so I want to thank you for being our guest tonight on the show. Thank you, Beth. We've been talking with Scott Killoughby, and the tonight has been Bridging the Gap in Trauma, Addiction, and Spiritual Awakening. You know, life's too short to not get the junk in your trunk cleaned out, so to speak. It's always to your benefit when you take actions that grow who you are, that evolve who you are, that heal who you are, that that help you move into a deeper understanding of the magnificence that every single one of us is. This human persona, this soul in a human form is is such a miracle. And that's why that's what I love about uh, episodes like tonight to be able to work through the struggle, work through the karmic imprinting, if you will. It's always a pleasure bringing you guests like this so you can help yourself grow into a a more vibrant, healthy, alive, and genuinely happy, happy human being. 
It's always a pleasure. I'm your host, Les Jensen. I want to thank you for spending this time with us tonight. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's latest book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.